these things. Yes. Okay. So you've just told me that you are, uh, you know, have total leave of your senses. The supernatural part of the Bible is a part that can be kind of embarrassing to us. And because it's been embarrassing to us, and, and perhaps in the past that we have mishandled it, we tend to step back from it. We kind of think, oh, this is kind of like, you know, I, I don't want to think about that because it, it, it makes me uncomfortable. And because it makes me uncomfortable, I'm just going to ignore it. But that's not really, that's not really the option that uh, God gives us. Here's what you need to understand as well, too. The closer we draw to God, the more important we become to the enemy. I was having this conversation with somebody a few months back, and they said to me, oh, you know, I'm just being attacked by the enemy. I'm like, oh, really? And of course, as a pastor, I'm like, well, tell me. And so I asked some questions. I'm like, so are you reading your Bible more? No, not really. Are you praying more? Well, not really. Are you doing, like, are you serving? Are you giving your life away more? Not really. And I said to them, okay, just let you know, you're not being attacked by the enemy. It's probably just indigestion. Because why would the enemy attack you if you're useless for the kingdom of heaven? What exactly is it about your life that's made you a target for the enemy? See, if you're doing nothing for the kingdom, the devil, the enemy, he'll just leave you as you are. Why? He's already achieved his goal. There's nothing about you that is a threat to his kingdom. You are not furthering the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, why would he attack you? And sometimes we have to ask ourselves that if we use a phrase, oh, I'm being attacked or whatever. We have, what we need to say is that if that is true, then we should be able to see in our lives fruit. We should be able to see in our lives something that has changed, a disposition about us that has changed towards God. And that disposition about us that has changed towards God makes us dangerous to the enemy. I love uh, in Acts chapter 19, this one the moment in time, this little snapshot of the supernatural realm, right? This man is going about trying to imitate the apostles, trying to cast out demons, right? And the demon, in this particular instance, speaks back. And so this is what he says. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I know about, but who are you? Before you can say to yourself, I'm being attacked or all that, you have to ask yourself, does the devil know your name? It's kind of an odd statement, isn't it? It's like, what are you talking about? See, the demons gave him kind of a a, a little glimpse into this realm. And again, we have very small glimpses. I'm not going to make any grandiose assumptions about it. But what I do know is the demon says, listen, Paul and Jesus I know because they are tearing up, you know, they're tearing up the dark places. They are bringing light to dark places. They They are working for the kingdom of heaven. That's what they're doing. But you, you're useless. Why would I even know your name? So what we have to understand something is that whenever God speaks to you, and I know maybe some of you have felt this. Maybe it's been a retreat or a teaching or a conference or some moment in time where you felt yourself draw towards God. As soon as you feel yourself drawing towards God, you need to understand there is a uh, target that is being painted on your back. Because as soon as you awake, as soon as you are awakening to what God wants to do in your life, the enemy looks at you and going, okay, we cannot let this happen. Why do you think that after a retreat, why do you think after a moment where you've experienced God, you run smack dab into something that's going to distract you, going to push you down, going to break you, whether it's a relationship, it's a habit, it's, it's a past, whatever it is. Why do you think that is? Because the enemy is smarter than you. He knows exactly what, it, what what's going to take to distract you from God. The last thing he wants is you to think about God. The last thing he wants is for you to press into God. Because if you begin to experience what God wants you to experience, you become a direct threat to his kingdom. So what you have to understand is that 
the Bible tells us very clearly that, you know, if you are, if you are advancing the kingdom, if you are serving, if you are living your life out in a way that's really, that's, that, that, that's, that's what God wants for you, the enemy knows you. And the enemy wants everything he, to do, that he can do to stop and to hinder that. So let's go on in Acts chapter 6, verse 13. Therefore, and of course I put therefore in large font, because whenever Paul is trying to put together an argument, a discussion, he'll use this word. And by the way, if you see this word in Paul's letters, please take note, because Paul is about to sum up something he just did. So he starts off saying, therefore, therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. See, you are outmatched, uh, outgunned, and outsmarted by the enemy. You are no match for the devil. You think you are? You think you're smart enough? You think you're good enough? You think that you've got it all together? You're not. The enemy is an ancient, ancient foe. He has examined humanity through thousands upon thousands of years. He has seen us in every kind of civilization. He knows us. He is a master of psychology. He is a chessman that is five uh, moves ahead of you. If you think you can go toe-to-toe with the devil or his army, you are, 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 are grossly mistaken. You are simply no match for him. Paul is trying to help us understand something. Now, here's what's interesting. As soon as we talk with the armor of God, you automatically go into, I've heard this before. And what's interesting about the armor of God is, is what you need to realize is Paul never repeats this. He doesn't write to the church in Corinth and say, by the way, Corinth, I told Ephesus this. You need to understand as well. Put on the armor of God. Hey, Galatians, uh, I just told the two churches I need to remind you, Put on the armor of God. This is never repeated in any other letter. So what we take from this is Paul is not laying down this armor of God. We get so wrapped up in the armor of God. We watch that Batman clip. And of course, those of you who know me, um, I love Batman. But every hero needs gear. Every hero needs to have gear. But why do they have it? Because they know that their enemy is going to attack them in a certain way. The armor of God is not about the armor. It's about the enemy's attack on us. Armor covers up sensitive, weak places. And what Paul is doing is he's using his visual of his Roman soldier, and he's using that as a starting point, saying, listen, this is six ways the enemy is going to attack you. And so when we talk about the armor of God, I'm not going to dress up in armor, although I have a sword at home I really want to bring in, and uh, that may happen just because I'm a geek. But uh, it's not really about the armor. It's about the enemy and how they attack you. So stop thinking about the armor, think, start thinking about the attack. Because what Paul is saying, and he has repeated in other letters, is the enemy wants to attack you in these ways. So this morning what I wanted to show you is, is the first way the enemy attacks you. So we see this in uh, Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. Stand firm then with a belt of truth buckled around your waist. Now again, of course, there's all people have been saying, oh, well, we need to wrap this and that and all that kind of stuff. Let me just show you what Paul is kind of referring here. Um, the Roman belt is known as a cingulum or the baltus. It played a crucial role in the effectiveness of a soldier's armor. Believe it or not, the belt was actually the, one of the most important parts of the armor. Why? If you didn't have your belt on, you couldn't take your sword with you. Imagine going out to battle without your sword. You're like, how, you, you know how, how crazy you feel if you leave your cell phone in a restaurant? Right? Or you leave it somewhere, you're like, Oh, 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 no, my electronics, my connection to my friends. And you run back in, it's like, oh, it's there. Or it's not there. And then, of course, the whole t- entire world melts down, right? But Paul is saying that he's using the belt of truth as a f- starting point. He's saying, listen, 
Truth is your primary defense against the devil's primary attack. So he starts off with a soldier's belt because he's trying to show us the most important way. Now, Paul uses the word the belt of truth. He uses a Greek word for the belt of truth called aletheia. Now, I've spoken on you before. I love this word. This may actually be my third or fourth Greek, uh, favorite Greek word because of what the word aletheia means. Let me show you what aletheia means. So Paul says, put on the belt of truth. Put on the belt of aletheia. Now, in the Greek, this is what aletheia means. The reality lying at the basis of an appearance. The noun aletheia etymologically has the meaning of something not concealed. The Greek philosophers use the word in the sense of that which really exists or the reality behind the apparent reality. In classical Greek, aletheia stands opposite to that which is only apparent or perceived to be real. So what Paul is saying is the word truth here is not just, oh, you have your truth, I have my truth. Paul is saying this is truth that is, that, that is discoverable. This is truth that you could dig down and you can find. This is truth that is tough. A guy named Oliver Wendell Holmes said truth is tough. You can kick it, you can bite it, you can punch it, you can do all that type of things, but it's still true whether you like it or not. That's the truth that Paul is trying to say that we need to, we need to have. Um, find this, the Greek idea of truth is therefore that which is unconcealed, unhidden, that which will bear scrutiny and investigation, that which is open to the light of day. And by the way, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, aletheia. Paul says, Put on, put, on, put on your person, wrap yourself in aletheia. Wrap yourself in this truth that can be discovered that is tougher than any metal, than any, any, anything, any element on this planet. This is truth that is tougher than everything. Why is he telling us that? Because the enemy's primary attack is lies. But it's not just lies, it's twisted truth. Now let me show you something here. If the devil came to you and said, you are a murderer, you'd go, I haven't killed anybody. That just bounces right off of you. Or the devil comes up to you going, you are a kicker of small puppies. And you're like, that was when I was seven. That doesn't bother me, you know? It, 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 it's, it's not an attack that has any kind of penetration in, in, in your being. But if the enemy comes up to you and says, you don't pray enough. Well, what about that thing that you did? Or how about that, 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 what you were thinking? And all of a sudden you're like, he just found his target. See, the enemy doesn't tell us lies. He tells us twisted truth. Because a lie just bounces off of you. But a truth about you, in, in, in a way that's harmful to you, that hurts. Let's face it, we all have a tape recorder in our head. And that tape recorder hits play in times of stress, in times of conflict, have you ever had a conversation with uh, someone you care about? Uh, if you're married, if you know a spouse, you 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 you'll have this argument, I and mean, when you walk away from the, this this tape recorder just play, and you walk away like oh, you know, and just this tape recorder goes on and on in your head. Those are the lies that we believe. The enemy's first attack for us is twisted truth. It's not what we think of when we talk about lies, because lies won't hurt us because they're untrue. What hurts us is truth applied outside of grace. I love what uh, Jesus said. Jesus is trying to explain the parable of the soils, right? You know, the sower goes out and sows seeds. That's what he says in Matthew 13, 19. When anyone hears a message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one, the devil, comes and snatches away what was sown in the heart. Every time you hear a sermon, every time that you encounter God, the devil wants to come alongside it and wants to pluck it from you. The reason he wants to pluck it from you is because he just does not want the seed 
to take root, to germinate. Because if it does, then something transforms in you. That's what, he, that's what the enemy wants to do. So I think when we talk about the enemy's attack with lies, there's three ways the enemy attacks us in lies. And for us, I think this morning would be really helpful is to go back in time to see the first attack the enemy ever did. And this is, of course, Adam and Eve. This is the fall. Genesis chapter 3. We see the very first time the enemy plied his trade upon a brand new species called humans. Right? But as he did it back then, he still does it today. Why? It still works. So let's take a look here. There's three ways I think the devil attacks us through lies. The first one is twisted truth. Now remember in Genesis chapter 3 verse 1, what did, what, what did the enemy say to, the, to Adam and Eve? Did God really say? And by the way, those four words can wreck your life. Because what happens is you begin to doubt God. Did God really say? Does God really love you? Does God really have a purpose and a plan for your life? Does God really believe this? Do you really, does, did God really say this about you? That he created you with a purpose and a plan? Because then all of a sudden we go, huh, maybe he, maybe he didn't. And you know, and I know, because I've lived this, that in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our brokenness, this lie, this twisted truth, it, it, it applies against our weakness, our insecurity with who we are in Christ. And so we go, huh, that sounds about right. This is what the Bible says about the devil. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan's oldest and best attack on us is to doubt God's truth. That has always been the way, and it will, it's still the way today. Do you know what's interesting is that in the, in the media today, there is an attack on the Bible. And I will tell you this, whether it's an attack on the Bible or an attack on, uh, on how we perceive it, your view of the Bible will dictate your spiritual life. It doesn't matter how nice thoughts you think and all that. How you examine, how you believe God's word, if you believe God's word to be mythology, if you believe it to be outdated, ancient, sayings that I have to worry about, it's too confusing, whatever relationship you have with God's word, that will be your relationship with God. And I've seen this, and, and we're seeing this even now, that denominations will start to say, well, maybe the Bible doesn't mean that. Or, or like as I said before, the Old Testament's too violent, too bloody. Uh, we, 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 we can separate that stuff from what God wants, right? And so what we do is we begin to read the Bible with a black marker. Not a highlighter, but a black marker. And we start taking out the stuff we don't like. Oh, that, God doesn't mean that. Oh, he, he couldn't mean that. And, you know, and, and God's okay. And, and what we, we forget is is that when we begin to edit or censor God's word, we begin to believe the lies the devil has for us. So as a pastor, these are, these are the type of things I hear all the time. The first thing people tell me when they believe the Satan's lies, they feel unworthy. We all feel unworthy. Someone came up to me and said, I feel unworthy of God's love. My response is, you are, you are absolutely unworthy of God's love. That's why I don't do counseling, just in case you're wondering. And they're like, what? I'm like, there's nothing you can do, say, to earn God's love. How he views you, how he sees you, how he speaks about, about you, how he speaks words of love over you. You do not deserve God's love yet. God loves you. God is merciful and compassionate towards you. Not because of how great you are, not because of your family, not because of your past, not because of your future, just because he created you. And as a parent, I understand that. 
You know, and, and those of you who are parents who have kids, you understand that, that your kids can be annoying and, and all sorts of types of things, but you love them. You love them. You just, they, 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 they're a part of you. And, and no matter their successes or failures, you just love them unabashedly. That's how God views us. We are created in his image. Therefore, when you say you're unworthy of God's love, the first response is, yes, I am. However, he still loves me. The second thing I hear a lot of time is unforgiven. You ever go to God and say, God, please forgive me of this. And you walk away and go, huh, that was too easy. I think I need to do something. Okay, God, okay, I ask you to forgive me, Lord, but uh, that was just way too easy, so I really need you to forgive me. And you're like, no, I, don't, I haven't punished myself well enough. So you go, okay, Lord, and you start, you start working up a spot. I need you to forgive me. I need you to forgive me. Hear me very clearly. Your feelings of forgiveness are not based upon God's word. When you ask for forgiveness and you mean it, and again, when I say mean it, like, it simply means, is this actually an act of contrition? Is this, act, is this something that you really believe? And if it is, 1 John 1, 8 to 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. That's God's truth. That counteracts Satan's lies. Um, hopeless, does God have a purpose for me? Too far from God. How many times have I heard this? Oh, I'll come to church when I get my life together. I will come and be part of this community or a small group or whatever when I get my life together. And my response is, well, that's never going to happen. You're never going to get life together. It just doesn't. And finally, the last one is one I think we fond of uh, so much. You can make it on your own. I don't need God. I don't need to go to church. One person said to me, I don't need to be, uh, I can be a Christian without going to church. I'm like, well, how's that working out for you? pretty good. You know, I see God in the sunsets and the clouds and the birds. I'm like, excellent. How are you giving your life away? Who are you serving? Who's speaking into your life? How are you able to take what God's given you and serving somebody else? Well, that's, you know, I haven't got to that part yet. You never get to that part. Why? Because it's a narcissistic Christianity. It's not really a true faith. Whatever God has done in you is not for you. It's for somebody else. As God forgives you and shows you what he has for you, it's for you to speak to somebody else. It's, we always pay it forward in, in, in our faith. It's, it's not just simply for you. So you can have all these great feelings of how much God loves you, but it's saying, this is what God's done in me. God has blessed me with these resources, with this money, with this time, with this, with this, with this ability to kind of, and I'm going to just give it away. And people who don't have a Christian community, whatever that looks like, don't tend to be involved in that. That's just the reality. So these are the kind of lies that, uh, that Satan tells us and we unfortunately believe. The second way I think that Satan attacks us is twisted desire. Because look what he says to Eve next. He says, if you eat this fruit, your eyes will be open. And remember, Eve said that this, this fruit was pleasing to the eye. Adam and Eve were sitting there and this fruit is pleasing to the eye. Now here's what you need to understand. The garden, we have this vision in our mind of, a, of the garden of Eden looking like our backyards. Right? And in the backyard, this is a tree. And all Adam and Eve do is walk around the tree. Look, oh, look, this tree we're not going to have, right? And then they walk in circles around this tree. When the Bible kind of maps out the garden, it looks to be about half the size of Ontario. It's huge. Right? Yet creatures and animals live it. They're not all like kind of, oh, this is great to be in the garden, right? All against each other. They're out there living as, as, as they're supposed to in their natural habitat. But what's interesting to me is that there's a tree in the middle of this vast expanse that God says, don't eat the fruit. I suspect 
that Adam and Eve, for some reason, were drawn back to this tree and, 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 and see it and look at it and going, and, you know, there's Adam and Eve as they walk by. Oh, look, there's a tree we're not supposed to eat from. Yes, let's not eat from it. But, oh, look, it's nice, right? It's pleasing to the eye, whatever fruit is. And, by the way, wasn't an apple tree. Just, you know, an apple. We don't know. All the Bible says it was a fruit. I like to think it's a watermelon, but I can't be sure. Um, oh, what? They don't really grow on trees, do they? Anyways, you get the idea. I think what Adam and Eve are experiencing here is envy. Envy, um, envy is a desire to other situation, other traits, status, abilities, or situation. See, envy is visually stimulated. Envy is something that we North Americans, we suffer from. Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, Twitter, you name the social media platform, and all it does is create within you a dissatisfaction with your own life. You ever seen a picture of your friends? Somewhere you're like, was not I invited? You see a person on this, this beach with a coconut, you're like, I want to go there. You know, you, all we do is we see and we envy, and all we do is become dissatisfied. And that dissatisfaction leads us to go after things that God has, has given us. It's this idea of like, oh, I, I want that. And all it does is it creates with us like, oh, I, I, I thought my life was okay. But then I saw this person, and they're surrounded by children that are different ethnicities than them. And look at that. They're in this. I want to go there because I can't serve God here. If I go there, then I can serve God. God's like, I put you here because that person in your workplace, that person in your classroom, that person needs to know Jesus. But if you keep thinking you can only serve me over there, then you'll be useless to me here. Envy is this thing I think that we, we don't realize uh, oh, sorry, I, I, I uh, went past that too fast. Um, envy is a thing I think that we, we don't realize how much we suffer from it. Um, it goes on to say, every other sin offers some gratis- gratification, if only in its early stages, but envy is an empty and desolating experience from the beginning to end. Uh, Francois, whatever his name is, 1665, this is what he says about envy. Back in 1665, we often pride ourselves on even the most criminal passions, but envy is a timid and shame-faced passion we never dare acknowledge. Uh, another guy by Richard Holloway says this about envy. Um, and since envy is a sin between friends or equals, remember, you can only envy what you see, and you only see what's in your realm of existence, which is your friends or, or, or people uh, and your, your equals. Another of its symptoms is hypocrisy. Acting pleasure in another's good fortune when actually you feel, actually feel gut clenching pain. It shows in the tightness of your smile and the shadow behind your eyes as you dredge up your congratulations from a well of bitterness. How often do we feel that? When someone achieves something or has something or gets something, you're like, oh, congratulations. I want that. What does the enemy want us to do? The enemy wants us to be dissatisfied with our lives. God wants us to be dissatisfied, but his dissatisfaction uh, takes us to a different place. It takes us to a place of, of, of closer intimacy towards him, where he fulfills all our desires and needs, that we find our completion in him, not based upon our income or status or education, but upon God. The enemy creates a dissatisfaction that leads us towards things that are pleasing to the eye, that, that takes us to places we should not go, and we, ch- we chase them and, and pursue them. I love how James says it. In James chapter 1, it says, 
But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. This is a cycle of envy. This is a cycle of sin, that we are tempted. We don't have to act on that temptation, but when we entertain it, when we think about it, when we begin to kind of bounce it around our brains, then all of a sudden we are enticed, and then we move towards uh, what James calls his death. So I think the second way the enemy attacks us is twisted desire. The third way, the last way, I think, is twisted purpose. What what, What does the devil say? You will be like God. And, that, and, and uh, that promise to Adam and Eve was true, but in a way they could not have even imagined. Exactly. Um, the enemy wants us to be independent from God. See, all the enemy wants to do is take you from interdependence, which God wants, to independence. I don't need God. I don't need this moral, ancient moral code that was written thousands of years ago for a race and a people that are not even of, in, in North America. God does not talk about the internet. God does not talk about all these type of things and, and, and biology. And, so what, what relevance can this book have to my life today? I don't need God. The enemy wants to create independence from God. And the further we are separated, the easier, we, the easier target we become. When we draw away from God, when we pull away from God, the easier it is to think that we are God. How many of us can think that sometimes? I've got money, I've got a house, I've got, I've got this, I've got that. I don't need God. There was a um, Simpsons episode where uh, Bart was asked to pray, and Bart prayed something like this. Dear God, I don't know why we need you. We have a house, we have food, we have everything we need. You didn't give, any of, us, you didn't give any of it to us, so thanks for nothing. Right? Unfortunately, we pray the same way sometimes. God, what do I need you for? But as we talked about last week, when your life gets turned upside down, whether it's uh, a doctor's report, loss of job, loss of relationship, all of a sudden the frailty of your life is revealed to you. You're like, oh, wait a minute. I'm not independent from God. But I do need God. I do need more than what God, uh, I need what God has for me. And twisted purpose uh, can also be seen in, uh, in, the, in the way that we think of God. But here's the interesting about God. As we look at for independence from God, God acts in a way that does not show he wants independence from us. This passage from Matthew, it's Jesus. He knows what to be crucified, and he sees Jerusalem. And look how he speaks about these people who are about to crucify him and reject him. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her her wings, and you are not willing. See, God stands for us. It's always to be in relationship. Throughout scriptures, all we see is a God calling humanity to be in relationship. Please, you don't understand. You can't do this on your own. You don't understand. You are created to be in relationship with me. You don't understand that these things you pursue will not satisfy. They'll take you to places that are going to break and hurt you. Please come on back. Please come on back. Please come on back. God stands for us. It's always to be in relationship. While the devil will say, oh, you don't need God. Besides, that God is a metaphysical uh, fixation you have in your brain. You don't need that, that, that thing. You're free without it. And our freedom becomes chains that wrap us around. Revelation chapter 21, the end of the Bible, the very end of the story, right? This is what God wants. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, 
God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. This is what God wants. Not our independence, but an interdependence. A freedom that comes from a security knowing that we were created for a plan and for a purpose. This is what we were created for. This is what God wants. Let me close with a passage from John. John's gospel is poetry. John introduces God to us in a way that nobody else does. John chapter 1 verses 1 to 5 says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was a light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John just takes his paintbrush and paints us a picture of Jesus. It's just astounding. But now look what he says in verses 14. The word becomes flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth are two concepts that always seem to be knitted together in the Bible. And the reason they're knitted together in the Bible is because there are two tensions that we face. The truth is you are a sinner. The truth is you will fail. And you fail now and you will fail in the future. That's the truth. And that truth may be painful, but that's the truth. But that's not the only way that God comes to us because he comes in grace. As truth is applied to us and we feel it, we're like, there's a cringe in our lives like, why? The second thing God says to us is grace. And grace looks like this. Yes, you've fallen. Yes, you're not worthy. But I love you. Now let me get you back up and let's continue this journey of faith together. Grace and truth. The enemy wants to fill your heads with lies and the soul, you've listened to those lies for so long you think them to be truth. The first way you understand God's truth is going back into his word to pray and, and, and just to meditate on his word. That's the first defense. That is the first defense of the enemy. His lies counteracted by God's truth. We got to stop the play button in our heads and begin to listen to what God has for us. Let's close with prayer. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I do this every week and I don't want... I don't want to rush you out of here without giving you an opportunity to talk, to think, to meditate. Remember I said to you that the devil crouches and waits to pluck truth from your heart so that it doesn't germinate. I believe this morning that God has been speaking to you. And I don't want you to rush out the door. I want you to take a moment just to press down on that truth that God is speaking to you. As I've been speaking this morning, I know that we can recognize the lies when we're confronted by it. I know that the lie of unworthiness can really can knock us off our feet. Especially for young adults who are in university who are experiencing a life and a freedom they never have before. And in that freedom, they can make decisions that they regret. And those decisions can weigh them or weigh them down. Some of you walk around with this weight of sin on your lives and you think it's normal. And God's here to tell you this morning, it's not normal. It's not what his plan is for you. Others of you, you think you're too far. You think your past is dictating your future. How can God love me when I've done this? 
when this has been done to me, whatever. God wants you to know that he loves you and that you are precious to him. And that he created you for a purpose and a plan. And you've listened to the lies for so long that you don't even know the truth. The truth almost seems too good to be true, but the truth is aletheia. It is discoverable. It is uncoverable. It is tougher than any emotional stance we could ever apply to it. So we're going to close now, but I just want to let some silence in this room, and I want to let God speak to you, and then I'll close in prayer. speaking in silence. Lord, your prophet heard the whisper in the storm and he knew that it was God. Lord, this morning I pray that you would whisper to our lives in the midst of our storms. God, for each person here, Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, you would speak to them. You would speak to their hearts and to their minds that they would know, that they would know, that they would know, that they are loved by the creator of the universe. Lord, I pray you'd forgive us for listening to the lies for so long. I pray you'd forgive us from being warped and broken by the lies. I pray, God, we'd embrace the truth. And the truth can be uncomfortable, but the truth is also, it is the reality of our existence. And I thank you, God, that you don't come with us just by truth, but you come with us with grace as well, too. That as the truth is revealed, your grace is there to pick us up. And that your truth doesn't crush us. Because in your mercy and your compassion, you've shown us a better way, a pure way. And I pray, Lord, that that would be our truth. Lord, I pray blessings upon each person here. And I pray, Lord, that we would walk in truth. I pray that Uptown Community Church would be a place where your truth is applied with grace. Thank you, Lord, that you treat us that way. In Jesus' name, amen.